And so I, I love being with you. I love being with Tim. And we're very like-minded, so it makes it comfortable and, and easy. The, the problem for you is I've noticed this bad habit is the more comfortable I feel at a place and with the pastor, the kind of the longer I preach. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I'll try to reel it in. But uh, I, I love this space. I'm sorry if anybody can't see me or anything, but man, this is beautiful. And the breeze coming in and you all sound so lovely in this room. Ah, so great to be here. Um, and thanks for having us back again. So we were here last summer, I was thinking, uh, and a lot has happened over the last year with our organization. And uh, so I'm so excited to be back. And uh, my name is Jake. I'm the executive director of the Anglican Relief and Development Fund. It's a, a long name. And our deputy director, Christine Jones, is here. Christine, raise your hand. Uh, she, she lives in Boston, so she, she is awesome that she gets to be here with me this morning. Uh, we don't usually tra- get to travel together, so that's super fun. Um, and one thing that I wanted to update you on that you might not know about is when I was here last year, I met one of your church members who can't be here today named Peter Vanacore. So Peter runs an organization called Christian Association of Youth Mentoring, C-A-Y-M. I think I got that right. Uh, well, after I left, Peter and I struck up a friendship, and he had dreamt of starting a mentoring project in Rwanda, but they didn't have the structure necessarily to do it. So he approached us to say, could Anglican Relief and Development Fund, through the Anglican Church, provide some structure to launch some of their mentoring projects in Rwanda with a guy that he had been mentoring, a Rwandan man that he had been mentoring. And so since I've been here last June, uh, I was thinking there's now six Anglican parishes who are hosting mentoring locations for CAYM and over a hundred people involved in mentoring programs, like just since last summer. Isn't that amazing? Praise God. Like, and that's, um, that's why I love visiting churches, because you never know. I w- that's not something that was on our radar. I wouldn't have dreamt in a million years that we could help start a mentoring program, and we had some strengths that CAYM needed, and that's the beauty of the Global Anglican Communion. That's why we love what we get to do is this global network of trusted partners, so we're able to facilitate all kinds of work in the world. And I'll tell you more about that toward the end of my sermon. But anyway, I thought that would be a very fun update for your church to know that that's happening. And it's amazing what we can do when we work together. Um, so I'm also thrilled today to get to preach on one of my favorite portions of scripture in the New Testament. <clears throat> I love the story of Thomas, and I find it to be one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. And I want to talk about that just for a minute. But first, we pray with me? O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So in this scripture that Father Tim read, we're in the middle of an unfolding story. As most of you know, Jesus had spent three years with the disciples. The disciples had some things in their mind that might happen with Jesus as their leader, that there might be a kingdom established. They were very excited about what Jesus was implementing in the world. And then things take a a different turn than any of them expected. Because, you know, God doesn't always show up exactly like we think he will. And Jesus ends up being crucified, not what they expected. And the, the followers of Jesus are devastated. So sometimes I think we can skim over that a little bit. Like they're devastated. They, they left their careers. They went all in with Jesus, expecting something. And then when this tragic ending happens, they're devastated and they're scattered and they're hiding because the chances are they could face similar fate, right? Maybe the Romans would come after them next. So they're scared. I'm sure they're confused. 
they're, they're wondering, what do I do now? Do I go back to my former career? You know, I, I, I went all in on this and now my world's kind of falling apart. But then there's rumors, right? That Jesus has risen and he started showing up to groups of people. But poor Thomas hasn't gotten to see the risen Jesus yet. And Thomas, I love him because I, I would be exactly like Thomas. And we, I don't know how you all read this, like, but I read it like Thomas is, is ticked. That's how I read it. And he's like, oh yeah, Jesus is alive. Well, I want him to walk through that locked door and show up miraculously in the middle of this room and let me put my finger in his wounds. But that's what I'm talking about. You know, I don't think Jesus is being like real loving in this passage. I think he's mad. And, uh, all, <laughs> and sure enough, Jesus does exactly what Thomas says he wants him to do in that instance and shows up and his wounds are still there. And he allows Thomas to touch his woundedness. And I think this is one of the most beautiful sections of scripture for so many reasons. And uh, I know good Anglicans don't really do like three point sermons, but I'm, I came from a Southern Baptist church. So forgive me. Uh, there's three observations. There's so many observations that could be made, but I just want to make three um, and try to do it fairly quickly. But the, the, the first one is that it's okay for doubt to be expressed. Uh, in my hometown, Cleveland, Tennessee, we're in the buckle of the Bible Belt, which is good and bad. <laughs> I could literally fill my calendar, uh, and I'm not exaggerating, with young adults who were raised in church but are now in some measure of deconstruction. Uh, they're in the throes of figuring out how to deal with their doubt. And many times I've had the awesome pleasure of being the first like official church figure that, that these young adults come to to express just how deeply their doubts are. So they're internally been struggling with it, but they've been afraid to tell any church figure. And, and I've, I guess this is a good thing. I don't know, but I've gained the reputation that I would be a, a good priest to talk to if you're in that situation. And maybe that's a bad thing. Okay, thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. <clears throat> But each time this happens, I'm able to respond to them out of my own woundedness around this topic. They're shocked to know that I still go through seasons of doubt, that I wrestle with my faith. Uh, for me, faith is never came easily. Like I was having lunch with a spiritual director, a friend of mine, and was, he, he's in his 70s. And he was saying to me that he's, he, was, he was thanking the Lord. He's never had a season of doubt, that just his whole life, it's just faith has been easy for him. And that's not the case for me. Um, I got saved when I was 13 at a little church in Kentucky. And I've been consistently having to recenter during my journey the whole time, come back to Jesus with my questions uh, and asking yet again, hey, can I see those wounds <laughs> one more time? And uh, my poor youth pastor growing up, I, I've, I need to reconnect with him at some point, but I'm sure he hated to see me coming um, because even, I had this profound salvation experience, like something that was amazing. Like I can never deny that Jesus encountered me and what happened in my heart didn't really translate to my head. So I came the very next week with my Bible, like the flood, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I didn't know about this. And then Jonah, uh, he ate a, he ate, a whale ate a man, you know, like really? So every week I would come in with a new skeptical question for my youth pastor and I think I probably stressed him out so much. Um, but anyway, see, there I go, getting off track. That's why my sermon gets longer when I feel too comfortable in a place. But here's the way this usually plays out. Young adult comes to me, fear and trepidation. 
They tell me that they don't know exactly what they believe anymore, and they can't stop the doubt. They, they try to stop the doubt that's arising, but they can't. And I'm always shocked because they expect me to respond with anger or disappointment. But instead, I'm moved with such empathy because I totally understand how it feels to experience the dark night of the soul. And so many people in our Christian tradition know how it feels to go through this. And when I tell them my own journey and I'm vulnerable enough to show them my own wounds, there's such a sense of relief and hope. Now, I'm not saying that they all are, you know, come back to Jesus in that moment, but it, the mutual woundedness opens up this line of communication that allows me to stay connected with them and ultimately them connected to Jesus. So I love Thomas's outright honesty. I love Jesus's response. God is big enough for our honesty. He can handle our directness. And if you're a Thomas person like me, he can handle those direct questions and requests. So come to him with your doubts and your questions and your struggles. It's okay for doubt to be expressed. So that second observation that always strikes me is the paradoxical beauty in our woundedness. A beautiful wound, that's a, like, that's a paradox, right? That, that shouldn't make sense. But those of you who've been through a, a wounded situation and you've come out on the other side, you know how beautiful that is once it's restored. I find it so compelling that the resurrected Jesus still had his wounds. A wounded savior. What a paradox. What a beautiful paradox. A wounded healer. Doesn't make logical sense, but it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. In my mind, it's, it's the mo one of the most unique and attractive aspects of Christianity that we have a savior who's experienced the world and understand what it's like to be wounded. Not only does he understand it, but he maintained his wounds even after resurrection. I just find that to be so beautiful. And that's how important it is for Jesus, for you, to Jesus, for you to know that there is pain in the world, but it can be healed. We don't worship a God figure sitting cross-legged between two candlesticks. We worship a God who hung on a cross between two thieves. And Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness. So we want to hide our weaknesses. We want to cover up our woundedness, but there's something power, powerful in our vulnerability. So I'm sure you've all had this experience. When you get up the nerve to tell someone about your deep failure or your weakness or your area of woundedness, and they surprisingly respond with, I've had the same failure. I've had the same wound. I've been through that. There's a deep sigh of relief because there's something about our mutual pain that brings us together. So every time you're wounded, just remember that it's a mark that could potentially provide healing for someone else in the future. Not that we go out seeking to be the victim, but every difficult season of your life, once you've worked through it, it can be a point of healing for someone else. So if you're in here this morning and you're going through it right now, just know that that woundedness can be something that heals someone else's doubting heart if we follow the model of Jesus. Amen. Henry Nouwen once uh, wrote a famous book called Wounded Healer, and he says this, nobody escapes being wounded. We're all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service to others? There's a counterintuitive beauty in our woundedness. 
All right, so the third observation, last one, is that there is a deep need for more wounded healers in our world. So one of my favorite things about my job, and I think Christine would echo this, is that we, we fund both relief activities and uh, development activities in America and around the world. And uh, one of the things we ask is if we fund a partner, we ask that they would send us back how they used our funds. Uh, so we, we want to provide some accountability, and we want to be able to tell those stories to other people. So uh, every week at the beginning of our staff meeting, the top of our agenda, uh, one of our staff members puts in all the stories that she's gotten that week links to them in a Google Drive. So we have the luxury, every single week, we start our meeting and we're able to click on this and read stories of the global church doing beautiful things all around the world. And I was frustrated one day because I'm so sick of the bad news. Like the, the, There's plenty of documentaries and exposés and how the church is awful and all these things out there that we all know those things, but nobody's telling the good news and the beautiful stories. So I said in our staff meeting, everywhere I go for the next year, I'm going to be the good news guy. So um, that's going to be my job is to tell these beautiful stories so the church can, the, the church is still the hope of the world, right? Sure, there's been bad things that happen, but the church is beautiful and there's so many awesome things happening. And so to, I want to tell you some stories this morning um, and <clears throat> that I find inspiring. And these are specifically around these wounded healer figures that I'm encountering that I think everybody should know about. Because the global church is, is in, there's many places in deep, deep poverty and deep strife and areas of hard conflict. But the, in the middle of that, there's these people who've lived through that. They've, they've been wounded through those, but now they are providing healing in beautiful ways. And it's that counterintuitive paradox, like these wounded healers the, that, that just inspire me so much. So, um, we were in Burundi and we, we met with a, Burundi's the poorest country in the world. Um, I, I didn't realize that before we went and I didn't prepare myself for how hard it would be to see that level of poverty. Uh, you know, they had the same conflict that Rwanda did, but their, their civil war genocide lasted 13 years longer. So they haven't had near the time to recover that Rwanda has, but most of us don't know this part of the story in Burundi. And so we're, we're there and, and we were meeting with one particular man who his father was murdered by another man during the conflict. And he has since then, he's grown up, right, without his father. And he started a ministry for street children, children who didn't have family or were living on the streets for some reason. And doing their intake process one day, he was taking intake for a sibling group. And what he realized during the intake was that they were the children of the man who murdered his father. And so he's faced with this decision, like, what do I do? Do I take these kids in? But he, he knew what it was like to grow up without a father. Like, he had that wound. And so in that moment, he knew exactly, I've got to accept these kids. And then, you know, he, he tells their leaders now, years later, in his ministry. It's just such a beautiful story of, of reconciliation and wholeness and forgiveness and the Christ-like way, right, that we should operate in the world uh, we also visited an, an Anglican bishop there, Bishop Seth. If you're in the Anglican world, you probably know Bishop Seth. He's well-known. But Christine and I both got to go and visit him. And I, I can't even describe how my heart was torn in two. In one side of my heart, I just walked around thinking, oh my goodness, 
how will we ever help? Because the poverty and the density of population, so intense. I mean, just we couldn't walk seas of people, children, and the amount of education needed and the amount of hospital care needed and the amount of discipleship and evangelism and training. It was just that part of my heart. I was almost felt hopeless. But then there was another part of my heart that saw what the church is doing. And they're packing as many kids as they can in a school that that we help. Well, a lot of people, we were a small part, we helped build. And they're providing education. So these kids, even though they're packed in there and it's wall to wall and you can't move, they are getting education. And the church is there in the midst of this poverty, demonstrating the beautiful love of Jesus in practical ways. And then we go into the hospital and these doctors are so full of joy. I mean, I can't even imagine. There's a room smaller than this room uh, with 10 hospital beds. That's the maternity uh, section where women are giving birth. It's two women per bed. Uh, and and the, they don't have nurses, so family members come in are the nurses. So if you can imagine 20 people potentially giving birth, plus the two or three people helping them and the doctors. But it was so beautiful. Right? The, the joy of the doctors and the care and the, 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 them telling us about how infant mortality rate is decreasing because of, uh, it's a huge medical clinic. That was just one section. So it's like, you know what I mean? Like torn, like this is beautiful. And Bishop Seth has so much joy. And I just get so frustrated with myself, right? Because I, and I encounter small conflict in my church or in my, and I get so frustrated and, and, annoyed, and he's just walking around with so much joy and optimism, and we're going to keep doing our work in the midst of really hard situations. But he knows. He's been there. He's, he's, he's been wounded through it, and now he's turned into a wounded healer, and it's so beautiful. Uh, one of my heroes, um, I don't know what time I need to be done, Tim. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell just a couple more, but uh, one of my heroes in the world is a guy, he lives in Cambodia, his name's Sign, he's a Cambodian guy, and now he's in his 30s, but when I met him, he was, uh, he was 20, and he grew up in a village in, uh, in a children's home there, and the village he grew up in was a very rural farming community, and they had, a, they had a vicious cycle where they grew enough food during the rainy season to get about three-fourths of the way through the year, but that last third of the year was very difficult, and they would experience starvation, even to the point of death sometimes. And so he lived through that growing up. And when we met him, there's a few of us, and he was telling us, he was like, would y'all help me? He said, I don't want this to happen anymore. And I think I have enough trust in the community, I could start a rice bank. And if we could just fill this rice bank once, I believe after that it would solve this problem. So if people didn't grow enough rice, they could borrow rice for that last third of the year. And then when they grew, they could pay it back, which is a little bit of interest. And then we would be a rice bank for the community. And so in his mind, he was asking for $10,000 to build a little shed and fill it up with, with rice. In his mind, that was an astronomical amount, not achievable. And of course, the people with us, we, that, you know, the one thing powerful that the Western church can do is in the right way with best practices, share resources. So we were able to help him do this. And as far as we know, death by starvation has not happened in that village since 15 years later. Uh, just one wounded healer with an idea. And so I did, I, I, we helped, ARDF helped fill the rice bank once. 
But I, I didn't go back for eight years, and I just went back. And that farm, y'all, is heaven on earth. So it was 10, about 10 to 15% Christian, this village. Now it's about 80% Christian. And they just bought 30 more acres of land. So now they're all over. Farmers are coming to learn how to irrigate better. They're growing new crops that are being introduced. They're, te- they're doing commodity lending with pigs and chickens. And now they have they got 30 head of cattle now that they're teaching people how to do cattle. So they're commodity lending with cattle. And, and, and like the entire village like when I think of kingdom of heaven coming to earth, I think of this village and sign. One guy, wounded healer, said this isn't going to happen on my watch. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Ukraine, the church there, you know, we've, we've heavily, we, we, did a, we had a great response from our donors in America. So we've supported a bunch of efforts in Ukraine. And we, we got a video, this pastor, he, um, he, he said, his, his words were, I was kind of just a bored pastor before the war. I was just a pastor, and it wasn't super exciting. But after the war started, he feels deeply called by the Lord to be on the front lines. So he'll take relief uh, stuff, food, water, things, to the front line soldiers. So now when we get videos, there's like bullets. He's in full Kevlar and bullets whipping across his head. And he's like, this video compared to my video before the war, I would have never thought I could do this. But he's stepping in to be a healer. Um, There's churches all over America responding to disasters, I got to meet with the Archbishop of who was in America a few weeks ago. And this last story, I, I won't tell the rest. <clears throat> um, the church, the Anglican church, very unique opportunity. This is a very hard time, and I shouldn't be saying the name of this country. So um, anyway, let's roll with it now. <laughs> um, the, so the Anglican church, uh, COVID all happened at the same time. So the the problem was that most of the hospitals weren't operating. And so, and you couldn't get relief funds. So we were able to figure out a way to get funds in. Um, and that's one of the beauties of the global Anglican communion. So there for a season, the Anglican church set up 12 care points that were some of the only care centers in the whole country providing COVID relief. And so it was the church that stepped in, right? Um, and and the, the archbishop there is, is really heavily involved in some peace talks to, to try to bring about a greater measure of peace. And, it, and it's kind of the, the church that has been there the whole time. And they're going to be there in the future. And they're powerfully being present for Jesus, navigating difficult circumstances. And in the midst of you have the, the, the military government on one hand and the church on the other, and sometimes they get at odds and the church standing in that middle way to, to navigate that and maintain peace and provide care in a holistic way. It's just beautiful. You know, we, we got a video from Turkey, Syria earthquake and the, the video, the person was asked that received some, some uh, relief food. Do you have any questions for us, for the partner that we funded? And this person who wasn't a Christian said, I just want to know why it's always only the Christians who are in the rubble with us. When there's rubble, there's Christians. Why is it only the Christians who are present? And that has become one of our mantras at ARDF because this is what we were built for. Like when the church is operating of what we're called, we're called to be in the rubble with people. Right? That, that's when, sometimes when we get too out of the rubble is <laughs> when I feel like we get off track. But to be in the rubble with people in their lives, these were some extreme examples. But when people are going through hard times, that's where we're called to engage. 
right? This is, this is what we were built for. And God uses these wounded healers in America that I encounter around the world to heal my doubting Thomas heart. So when I'm tempted to doubt God because there's so many natural disasters, then I see people experiencing the disaster and they're demonstrating great faith in God. And it puts me in check. When I'm tempted to doubt God because of the way the church is behaving, I see consistent, real, authentic believers all over the world demonstrating grace and displays of Christ-like service. And it puts me in check. So God uses wounded healers all over the world to heal my doubting Thomas Hart. So Trinity, may each of you discover the paradox of your beautiful wounds. May you become wounded healers in your sphere of influence. And may you bring your doubting Thomas Hart to the Savior this morning, who's here and present and willing to let you touch his wounds. We pray with you. God, I thank you so much for this passage of scripture. Jesus, I I thank you for your leadership that you call us to mimic. That you 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 bring your woundedness, you show your woundedness, you in your power you maintained your humility. And Lord, I pray that you your church would mimic that, that we we would be comfortable with how with how we've been wounded, Lord that we would be able to realize that those points can be points of healing for us and for others. Lord, if there are people in this space today who are in a season of doubt or a dark night of the soul, I just pray that you would be powerfully present with them. That even now in this moment with this breeze and and the coolness of this space, that, that they would even have a sense of your love. And God, we thank you for scripture. We thank you for these stories. We thank you for inspiring us and we thank you for your global church that in the midst of hard times always steps up to display your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.